Recovery Elevator, episode 90. I guess like the biggest part with telling people about it was that when I didn't have the strength to keep sobriety for myself, I had other people to keep me in line, and I really needed that. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator Sobriety Tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 25 months, three weeks, and four days. On today's podcast, we've got Christine. She took her last drink on June 13th, 2016, and has been sober for 129 days. Christine is bipolar, and she's getting her PhD in chemistry here in Bozeman, Montana at Montana State University. This interview is special for me. Christine was the one who picked up the phone in 2014 when I was at my bottom. When I reached out for help, she was there big time. Thank you so much, Christine. On today's podcast, I want to talk about what a dry drunk is and the willpower mode. A dry drunk is somebody who uses their willpower to quit drinking. Now, studies show that willpower is finite and is exhaustible. Your willpower will eventually become depleted. So a dry drunk, they quit drinking and then they don't work a program. Now, when I say program, I know a lot of ears shut down immediately. A program does not necessarily look like AA, a rehab program, a 12-step program, etc. Program, your program, can be unique to yourself. It can look completely different than your neighbor's program. Now, there's a lot of riffraff on the internet claiming ways to get sober without AA, without any program. And I've done some research into these, and really all of them, they're a program. But a dry drunk is just that. It's quitting drinking without any program. It's simply making the decision with your willpower to not drink anymore. A lot of us have been successful in quitting drinking. Well, successful in quitting drinking for a short period of time. For me, on January 1st, 2010, I made the decision to quit drinking. I made it for almost two and a half years on just willpower alone. Was it fun? Well, there were some bright moments, but in the end, it was exhausting. I think everybody, somebody who works a program or a dry drunk, in the first couple weeks, months, days of sobriety, we're all white-knuckling it. The difference is, a dry drunk, they continue to white-knuckle it all the way through. So when you quit drinking, you become healthier. Physically, you feel better. You feel like you've been born again and the memory of passing out in a Cracker Barrel buffet line becomes distant. Yeah, that's a true story. I got an email about that a couple months ago and I asked a gentleman if I could mention it on the podcast. He's like, sure, go for it. So with your decision to quit drinking, which you're gaining confidence in, you're saying, look, a lot of people, they can't quit drinking, but I did it. I got this. Again, three dangerous words. You don't got this. The instant you say I got this usually is followed by a relapse. And within time, eventually, the bad memories fade away, which is a bad thing because A, the cornbread at Cracker Barrel is fantastic, and B, hell, that was the reason you quit drinking. Studies show that human beings have selective memory and will choose to remember the good things, the cornbread, and not the bad things, ambulance, Cracker Barrel. Now, right about now, you might be saying to yourself, wait a second, Recovery Elevator episode 89 talks about the people who decide to quit drinking and they're successful for years. Now, what the hell is the difference? In my non-expert opinion, this is it. Dry drunks, they haven't quite banished the idea that one day we'll eventually be able to normally drink again. Now, if you're listening to this and saying, wait a second, I have fantasized, maybe obsessed about the idea of normally drinking again, you're not the only one. Everybody has. The difference is, and I can say where I'm at right now, I entertain those thoughts all the time, but I know it's not a possibility. I know not even on a distant planet, I'm going to be able to normally drink again. So a dry drunk, that's somebody who still thinks, yeah, on Pluto, I might be able to reasonably drink again. 
So it's with that difference that eventually with a dry drunk, the cognitive dissonance starts. That's where a conscious and unconscious mind start to have this internal battle, internal dialogue that's conflicting. My cognitive dissonance is called Gary. That guy starts chirping. He starts chirping loud when I'm not working a program. Doesn't have to be a 12-step program, but it starts chirping. And it started chirping a lot right around the two-year mark in 2012. In fact, when I went to my first AA meeting, Gary was right on my shoulder. We walked out and he's like, dude, you're not an alcoholic. Good news. Let's go drink. That's what we did. I often get asked, well, how do I not be a dry drunk? Well, affirmations is a huge part of that. In episode 52, I talk with Elliot about affirmations. Affirmations is something that reminds you that, yeah, if you start drinking, it's going to be incredibly difficult to stop and all the good things in your life, they're probably going to go out the window within a limited amount of time. Simply listening to a podcast a day, a podcast a week, that could eliminate the dry drunk issue. Simply having coffee with another person who has made the decision to quit drinking, that will eliminate the dry drunk issue. Going to an AA meeting, yeah, that'll help. That's not enough, though. Going to an AA meeting and actively participating, listening, and chatting with other alcoholics, that's a good way to do it. But cruising through life, simply not drinking, and not really diving into the fact that, yeah, I'm an alcoholic and I probably should never drink again in my entire life, that's dangerous. Because I remember during my 2.5 years of sobriety, when somebody asked, hey, are you an alcoholic? How come you're not drinking? I had difficulty making that connection. I'd say, well, you know, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic, yes or no, but right now I'm not drinking and, and, and that's the way it is. There was always in the back of my mind some idea that I'd be able to drink again like a normal person. And like I said earlier, if you've asked yourself that too, don't worry, you're not alone. The difference is dry drunks, they kind of believe it in the back of their mind that there's a way that they can drink normally. And I've said it before on this podcast, when I ask interviewees, did you ever have any successful plans to moderate your drinking? There's a part of me that obsesses over that, but there's another part of me that squashes that thought very quickly. Here's another uplifting way to tell if you're a dry drunk. You know you're a dry drunk if when you quit drinking, your life doesn't get better. In fact, it's miserable, it's exhausting, and it's slowly going downhill. My sponsor was sober for five years before going to AA. He recalls that time of his life as just that exhausting. It wasn't getting better and it was going downhill. He knew that a drink was on the horizon soon. Whether you choose to get sober with a 12-step program or just do it on your own, one thing that I've found in common with everyone I have chatted with who has been successful in recovery is they work a program. And I know you hear the word program and instantaneously think 12-step. We'll throw that out the window. Programs can look like meditation, yoga, diet and exercise coffee with other people who don't drink. It can take so many different ways. But if you go enough time without the self-affirmation that you do have a problem with alcohol and you probably should never drink again in your entire life, your addiction will eventually convince you by lying to you in your own voice that it might not be a bad idea to have that Bud Light Lime. All right, and before we hear from Christine, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face -face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, 
I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Christine, how are you? Hey, Paul. Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for asking. Christine, before we get any further, when was your last drink? My last drink was June 13th of 2016, and if I'm counting right, that's about 129 days ago. Nice job. Just after four months. And tell listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, and maybe some hobbies and things like that. Sure. I grew up in a small town in central Michigan, but I've lived here in Bozeman for about five years. I'm a fifth-year graduate student studying chemistry, so I'll have my PhD probably in about five months, which is pretty exciting. Let's see. I like to do everything outside, hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, all that good stuff in all my free time, you know. There's so much of it. <laughs> yeah. So if we did this in five months, I would have to say, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Dr. Christine to the podcast. Am I correct on that? <laughs> well, let's hope. Yeah, that's awesome. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a special podcast interview for me. Christine holds a special part in my heart, and I'll get to that in a second. But in terms of intelligence levels, the people that I have met or have heard about in history, it goes Einstein, some guy who invented the light bulb, and then Christine. <laughs> and um, Christine, that's a compliment, but I do believe that worked against you in sobriety because we met, I believe, in 2011 or 2012. I was a dry drunk, and I observed you from afar at times. I kind of had to distance myself from you just because I saw the way you drank and I saw the way... Um, we used, and you and I both, like I, I, I resonated with it and I saw it and I told myself maybe one day she might have to quit drinking and I hoped I was wrong, but right now I'm so glad to be doing this interview with you. But the reason why Christine holds a special spot in my heart was because on August 29th, 2014, Christine was the person that I called when I needed help and picking up that phone, we've heard it be called the thousand pound phone. It's hard to do. And I put making that call off for so long, but I was, I remember I was at a wedding up in Big Sky and I'm working, mind me tell you, I'm working, I'm DJing a wedding. And every time the waiter walked by, I grabbed a glass of wine and it was like halfway through the wedding where I realized the gig was up, that this was exhausting. I was fed up. I was tired. It was bullshit. And I was ready to make a change. I was ready to stop. So who'd I call? Christine, I called you, so I'm so glad you're with me at this podcast interview right now, but I got to say a genuine thank you, Christine. You're welcome, Paul. It's my pleasure to be able to help you. It's awesome to see how much you've grown as well. Yeah, and tell me what you remember from that night, because I, I personally remember when we had no cell phone service, we were driving down the canyon, and I gave up. I was surrendered and I, I started crying I was like I'm going to rehab and I'm not funny at all but I was that was my bottom and I my window of opportunity to quit was there because I had fully surrendered and what was that drive back like for you you know I don't really remember all that much except that you were hurting so bad and all I wanted to do was make that pain stop and so glad that you were able to give me that call. I didn't want you driving up that canyon after drinking. I mean, everybody who drove that canyon has seen the 
hundred plus white crosses where people have died. I didn't want that from you. I remember you crying a lot and getting home and crying a lot. And I don't know if it was that trip or a different trip that I urged you to call your mom or your brother. And I do remember you called one of them uh, either that night or the drive back in the morning. And I think that was probably your first step to getting sober that time, huh? It definitely was. In regards to the crying a lot component, you know, we drove by some (laughs) horse pastures, so I'm pretty sure that had a... (laughs) had a slight role in it. Uh, yeah. And I called my mom, my dad, my brother, my mom, dad, brother, repeat, repeat, repeat. And they were actually spreading ashes of a loved one who passed away recently. And I said, okay, they're going to have that night, but tomorrow morning, it's going to be all about me. And speaking about me, this podcast interview is not about me, but I want to share just how you've been such an integral part of my sobriety, Christine. And I really appreciate that. And the next day after you picked me up from the Canyon, I straight up left all my DJ equipment up at the venue and we went back up there with the plan to camp we went up there we got the dj equipment then we found a campground and it was raining but the plan was to drink and uh you know i was like i'm getting sober but we're up here we're camping i might as well drink tonight and i very clearly recall drinking about a half of a beer and then i dumped it out and then i left i don't know if you remember that do you i do remember you leaving pretty quick i don't remember why or anything do you want to tell me why (laughs) finally it's just something changes when you make that decision or you fully surrender. You're done. And the beer just tasted gross. I was ready to quit drinking and the window of opportunity was still open. And luckily I took it. And again, I, I feel like I'm forever indebted to you, Christine. Thank you so much for picking up the phone, driving up the Canyon, picking my drunk ass up. Um, I had a lot of allergies that night to the horses everywhere in Montana, but there were some genuine tears there. But Christine, let's chat about you for the rest of this podcast, no more about Paul here. Take me up to the point when you quit drinking on June 13th. And, and was that your bottom? Well, you know, people always say that everybody's bottom is defined differently. My bottom doesn't really look like anybody else's, obviously. You know, no DUIs, no going to jail, nothing like that. But I was on a quick uh, path there. Um, I decided back in December... Um, of last year that I wanted to quit drinking. And so that was kind of my New Year's resolution. I quit drinking for about two weeks, and then I decided that I wasn't a quitter. (laughs) So then I went back to drinking. Hey, hang on. Um, You didn't decide that. That would be your addiction in your brain externalizing and talking to you in your own voice saying, Christine, we can't quit. It's it's, it's it's not the American thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the distinction. You are correct. So you two weeks. Yeah. What happened after that? So you've been sober for two weeks. Did you pick up right where you left off? Did you ramp back up? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was just right where I was going. I wasn't really fully committed to it that time, I don't think. I I hadn't gone down the proper steps to get the help I needed, to find the support system that I needed. I just, I did it wrong. But I'm glad that I did it wrong because it got me to the point where I was able to do it right which was in June, I guess the big moment that I was like, oh my gosh, what what is going on with my life was one day when I was heading fishing. Um, I was going fishing down towards Ennis, um, which is about an hour away from home. And I'd made this drive so many times during the spring. I had a buddy who was killed in a car accident down there in November um, of last year, 15. 
And so I kind of felt closer to him when I was down there. So I'd go down there quite frequently every couple days. And along the way, I would drink quite a bit. So this last time that I went down there, um, I had a couple beers on the road. And then I got pretty close to where I went fishing, and I let the dog out to run and popped open the cooler to get the bottle of whiskey, and it had spilt everywhere. Oh, no. And (laughs) I know. I was, like, horrified, heart starting to flutter because I was in a panic. I even... And this is kind of embarrassing. I even tried drinking the gross cooler water that had the whiskey in it. I couldn't do it. But anyways, went fishing anyways, probably killed three or four more beers over the course of that fishing trip. And then started heading back after dark. And after heading back, uh, I smacked a deer really oh, wow. bad. Thought I, I thought I screwed up my car and everything. And, you know, I had to call the police and they got there and I was able to take care of it. But it really, really opened my eyes. You know, if if I had that bottle of whiskey, if that bottle of whiskey had not spilt in my car, I would have a DUI or even worse. So I took it as a sign. It was time. Exactly. And sometimes, actually often, when that sign comes, when your higher power is present, a lot of people don't listen to it. They just keep drinking mm-hmm. and driving, keep going on their life. And you're right. You know, drinking and driving is one thing, but you know, you can usually navigate the roads, but then it's snowy. Then a deer walks out in front of you. And I was recently in Lake Powell two weeks ago, which usually was just like a booze fest down there, but our boat broke down and I was not drunk. And I was able to, you know, get us towed out of this Canyon and do a lot of stuff that required sobriety and just another benefit of, of being sober. Okay. So June 13th, 2016, what did you do? Oh, gosh. You know, those first few days were absolutely such a blur. I just remember that the first 24 hours were honestly hell. Um, I started uh, intensive outpatient therapy about two days after I decided to sober up. I probably should have started it on the first day, but I was just such a, a wreck. I remember I cried a lot. I was always crying. I started having hallucinations. I kind of thought that I heard voices through the fan throwing up so much. Everything was just really crappy. IOP, the intensive outpatient therapy, really helped. Uh, and it was really kind of cool to see other people in the same situation as me. I, I was bawling through the entire thing. And, you know, the people that I'm still in contact with from that group can tell you quite the transformation occurred over the six weeks I was um, part of that. And then, like, I guess after my first IOP uh, class, the three-hour class, I drove down to see a friend down in West Yellowstone. He was a fly fishing guide there over the summer. And, you know, over early sobriety, I drove back and forth countless times to see him. So, yeah, I don't know, days two through four, I would drive back and forth and spend the night there. So I'd have somebody that would be there for me when I woke up crying or hallucinating or you know, vivid dreaming, that type of stuff. We also spent a lot of the time together out on the river fishing, which was really, really therapeutic for me. Being out on a boat, being away from alcohol, there was there was no way that I was able to get alcohol in the middle of nowhere on a boat. So I was really fortunate to have him. And I mean, he's just one specific example of wonderful people in my life that helped me through those first couple days. Now, could you comment on how important it is for you to get outdoors and, and be fishing? And Is that an important part, or is it simply just being away from alcohol? Oh, gosh, no. So fishing, I picked it up back in 
February or January of this last year, 2016. Yeah, you know, fly fishing, it's just become my passion, absolute passion. And that was back when I was still drinking a lot. And I was so worried going into early sobriety that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, pull apart fishing from drinking. You know, a lot of people warned me of it, but I was able to. And shoot, let me tell you, like to this day, anytime that something feels wrong or off or bad cravings, people that are very important in my life know that I'm throwing down whatever the heck I'm doing and I'm going out and fishing, be it in zero degree weather or 90 degree weather. I will be out on the river fishing. It's just, it is the key to me staying sober at this point. So you were able to separate the two, drinking and fishing. Now, was fishing yeah. more enjoyable after, or was it just like, eh, you know, like cast and tug? Like, what? yeah, what happened after that? It's just as much fun. I've started tying my own flies now, so I'm more in tune with knowing exactly what bugs are out there. And I think within the first couple of months of me starting to fly fish, I tore three pairs of waders just by tripping and falling drunk on the river. I used to go, I know, I used to go swimming quite a bit in the river that got to be pretty cold, especially, you know, in March. But yeah, since being sober, I haven't torn a single pair of waders. Not purposely swimming. You're like, hey, the water's 43 degrees. I'm just going to go ahead and practice my breaststroke. Right, exactly. You know, cool off. Gotcha. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. And it sounded like you, when you're tying ties, it would it be safe to say with the whole fly fishing thing, you're more in the moment? Hmm. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm more in tune to everything around me and it's good. It's okay to finally be in reality in the present. And what does it feel like being fully in the moment, present in reality, in the situation at that time? It feels good, but at the same time, it feels like nothing. It's wonderful. It's I can finally get my head to slow down. And, you know, they always say that men are really good about thinking about nothing. Like if you hear a guy in your life respond to the question, what are you thinking about? And they, they say nothing, but it's really okay. And I never understood that before I started fishing. But you can really think about nothing. You men have got it figured out since you were born, apparently. But us women, I believe, have a hard time with it. It's great. <laughs> that's funny. Mm-hmm. All men have figured that out except myself. And and that's the clashing <laughs> with silence component that I've really had to work on is just sit there and be with myself and the thoughts and be in the moment. And like you said, it, it's, it's good. But sometimes the thoughts that come and the emotions that I feel, they're unpleasant. But that's okay. I don't act on them. I lean into them and accept them for what they are. So let's back it up a little bit, Christine. What were your drinking habits like before you quit drinking? You know, I like to think of it scientifically, obviously. I was on an exponential curve downwards. It was bad for a while before I stopped back in December. Then I started right back up where I was going. And let me tell you, that last month of drinking, I was just sliding worse and worse and worse every single day. And there near the end, I was finishing most of a bottle of whiskey by myself a day. Now, did you ever try to put rules in place? Like, okay, Christine, tomorrow we're going to go into chemistry lab and play with lasers. Let's only drink two nights a week. You know, yeah, I have. I I wanted to do that. But, you know, I'd get home from lunch or, you know, have to give a talk later in the day or something, and all those rules would be down the drain. I'd use booze to handle emotions and handle stress and handle work and 
literally handle everything, which is ironic because it was just making everything worse. I, I know, but somehow down the line, we were trained probably via TV commercials and media that we see that alcohol will help those stressful situations. We both know it doesn't. Now, Christine, I want to shift gears a little bit. We both know that addiction, alcoholism, um, it's extremely complex. It's different for everybody. And I myself, I struggled with anxiety and sometimes struggle with currently, but very less frequent and also mild depression. Now with you, it's you, you were diagnosed bipolar, correct? Yep. Bipolar two. Yep. Bipolar two. Now what does bipolar two mean opposed to one? So one is where you go into the complete mania state. So a lot of times this requires or going to the hospital. I go into hypomania, which is very much like mania, but my life is not in risk at that point. However, my bank account is at risk <laughs> at that time. Just an elevated state of mood and a depressive mood that go back and forth. And so how did the process go of determining that alcohol was also a problem? Because I imagine for me, it was difficult to tease out what was the issue. It's like, oh, it's anxiety. It's not the alcohol. And then finally, I'm like, wait, it's alcohol. What was that process like for you? Well, you know, my doctors and counselors have been telling me that I drink too much since I came out here. You know, apparently it's not normal to drink five, ten drinks a day, you know. I ignored it for the longest time, and they told me that, you know, a lot of my moods and my ups and my downs would improve if I drank less. I didn't listen to them. But, I mean, at the end there, finally, I was in a depressed state and drinking myself down and down and down even further into the depressive mode. And I knew that if I didn't swing up sometime soon, it was not going to be good. And how did alcohol react with the bipolar symptoms? It would just make the highs higher and the lows lower. So when I was excited and happy, I could drink and drink and drink and not sleep and be in this hypomania state and just go and be productive. And I was the life of the party. Well, I like to think that I was. And then when I was depressed, it would just drag me down and down and down and get me further and further in my head. And all the guilt and shame that was associated with it was just incredible. So what advice do you have for somebody who is bipolar and they're thinking, they're listening right now and they're thinking, I might have a drinking problem. What do you, what advice, suggestions do you have for them? Well, first of all, if you don't have a good psychiatrist, get one. If you don't have a good counselor, get one. And then be 100% honest with them. Just tell them exactly how much you drink, even if you have to write it down as you're drinking. Don't try to sugarcoat it for them. They've probably seen this before. It's not going to be a shock to them. All they want to do is help you. So just be 100% honest, and then you'll be able to get the best medical advice that you can. Listeners, there were a couple value bombs right there. What you were describing was your recovery team, and that's imperative. I had to put people in place around myself, both medical professionals, family members, and doctors in my recovery team to set myself up for success. And then after that, be honest, which is for some reason is a strange phenomenon for alcoholics. Even though we're paying these medical professionals, psychiatrists, therapists, counselors a lot of money, we still would underestimate our drinking amounts to them, but usually they saw right through that stuff. And then, you know, when, when you got honest with yourself and the doctors, what happened after that? Well, I don't know. The, the next step was to just start admitting it. So my doctors and counselors knew, but they 
weren't legally allowed to say anything to anybody else, I don't think. And so I needed to accept it. And I think that was the biggest struggle was accepting it myself and then taking the next step forward. And for me, that that looked like telling the department, I guess, advisor what was going on. Really caring woman broke down in her office, told her, and then I just boogied out of town for that weekend. And then I started my IOP stuff on Wednesday because I got sober on Monday. In that meantime, she had told my boss what was going on because I was too embarrassed to face him and tell him, which I guess at this point I look back on, I, I understand why I felt that way, but I shouldn't have felt that way because everybody was so understanding. I started IOP and I told my mom, who's probably my best friend on this planet, a couple weeks later, she knew that something was wrong with me, that something was going on, some intuition. So I finally broke down and told her. And then I told my brother a week later and then my dad a couple weeks later after that. It was kind of beautiful how it all progressed. It progressed exactly like it should have. I'm really fortunate. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, and this timeline mirrors mine and it mirrors a lot of other people who have gotten sober, is as soon as you got honest with yourself, you had to accept it. And then you started letting the cat out of the bag, which is a good thing to do. We think everybody's going to run for the hills. Not the case. You told uh, two, two people you work with, the, your, your boss and another colleague. You told your mom. You told your brother. And, and then it sounds like the rubber hit the road. You made some progress. Am I right on that? You got it. And what was that like? What, you know, what changes did you see after a week, two weeks, and a month? Well, I guess like the biggest part was telling people about it was that when I didn't have the strength to keep sobriety for myself, I had other people to keep me in line. And I really needed that. I know that other people, uh, I don't think anybody can do it alone, I guess, but there's different degrees of doing it alone or having somebody else hold your hand the entire way. There's a huge spectrum there. But I, I don't know. I needed to come to a good place in the middle there. And I am Facebook friends with you, Christine, and you talked earlier about the transformation. And I remember seeing photos of you, yeah, in the, in the river holding a fish, a beautiful rainbow trout. And it was cold. And it was like the winter time. And I could see in your eye that, yeah, I don't know, I don't want to say it like you were drinking, but I could see it that you were tired. And then just a couple weeks ago, you changed your profile photo. And holy goodness, Christine, it is transformation to say the least you're healthy you look like five years younger how do you feel five years younger well i don't i don't remember how i felt five years ago i was drunk back then Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah i feel better i lost let's see 20 25 pounds just from quitting drinking you've lost 25 pounds yeah isn't that incredible just from stopping drinking oh my gosh I know, there's not motivation right there. Like, <laughs> I don't know what you'll get. Yeah, I feel happier. I mean, <laughs> this is pretty ironic for all you listeners out there. Uh, Paul texted me this morning at 7.35 because I was supposed to call in at 7.30 for this interview. Um, and this is the first time that I've slept through something or been late for something, you know, in a couple months since early sobriety. I feel better in the morning going to bed at night still sucks sometimes but I have different techniques to fall asleep now um, where it used to be you know pound shots until you can't move and then you'll fall asleep 
that yeah, was actually going to be my next question, Christine, is how is the sleep yeah. after four months? And, and that's not a lot of time when it comes to sleep in, in your nighttime rituals and habits. Yeah. So it's really weird. I'm in what they call the post-acute withdrawal stage, um, according to the doctors and counselors and everybody in my group um, that I'm in here in town. And they say that everything can get worse three to six months after sobriety, uh, your sobriety date. And I'm right there. And some days are absolute hell. And I can't sleep. And it's not because I'm in a hypomania. I just can't sleep. Emotions get the best of me. And those those are the hardest times to stay sober. Because, you know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And you don't want to call and wake anybody up. But if you did call and wake somebody up, they'd be at your door. But then you don't feel like putting on pants and getting out of bed or anything to be social, you know. It's just, it's a really big conundrum and really hard for you to reach out for help at those times. So a lot of times I just charge through it, decide that, you know, I'll go into work at three o'clock in the morning or something, anything (laughs) instead of sitting there dwelling in my own head, because I know that's how I would get into drinking. And what you're describing is called pause. You're exactly right. P-A-W-S, post-acute withdrawal symptoms. And one advice that I have for that is just to be kind with yourself. You're right. I remember, you know, month seven, eight of sobriety getting frustrated with myself because I wasn't able to sleep at night like I would, like I used to. And I was 13 years old. Strange. But I just, it just went away and it took so long. It took so long for those symptoms to go away. And Christine, walk me through a day of your life and how you stay sober today. Well, I guess every single day of the week looks completely different for me. I don't really have a, I guess, day-to-day sobriety plan like a lot of people do. Um, AA, I I haven't really fully gotten on board with AA. I do go to a Friday and Saturday night AA meeting most weeks at that 9 p.m. here in town. And it's easier because those are the nights that I'd usually be out partying with my friends and the nights that they're still out partying. I don't have anybody to hang out with until or at 9 p.m. So I have a bunch of friends there at AA that I go to. Other than that, you know, I listen to this podcast when I need to, the, the Facebook group. I don't post very much at all, but I lurk. I'm one of those lurkers in the background. You know, and it's wonderful because if it's 2 a.m. here, it's the middle of the day somewhere else, and somebody is posting something encouraging. And there's so many times that I've looked at that and I've been so thankful for everybody on there because they say exactly what I need to hear, you know, at that time. Other than that, I see two different counselors every week here in town. I see an addictions counselor and I see a mental health counselor who I've been seeing for many, many years. I have a psychiatrist, and I keep in touch with my general doctor probably every few weeks. Go talk to them. Let's see. I'm in a DBT group, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, which is run through the Alcohol and Drug Services here in town. It's the continuing part of intensive outpatient therapy. So I'm in that with a bunch of people that I started becoming sober with. So we're all on the same path together, which is pretty cool. That's two hours a week. I mean, other than that, that's pretty much it. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, I get so busy and it's pretty easy to block out the cravings these days. I'm at work and when I'm at work, I'm at work and I'm fully there, fully present and dig my head in. 
I love it. And Christine, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Uh, sure. Yeah, let's give it a shot. <laughs> All right, Christine. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? <laughs> I was 16 years old and I was binge drinking at a curfew. My mom needed me to be home at an earlier time. So, of course, I got to the party and pounded eight shots of UV blue. And then I started running around for about 10 minutes and threw up blue everywhere. And my mom caught me. And I got in a lot of trouble. That was not a good start to my alcoholic career. I love it. Nice memory. Recalled. Next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. What was your oh shit moment indicating, uh uh-oh, I might not be able to control the booze? It was like I was talking about earlier when I smacked into that ear down in Ennis, screwed up my car. I realized it was time. And Christine, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? It's a really good question, but I don't really have a plan other than to keep sober. I consider future events that might be triggering, and I talk about those solutions with counselors and other friends, and we come up with ways to handle things like parties and weddings and first dates and celebrations at work. So it sounds like you're going to do kind of much of what's worked already? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and plan, you know, make sure that I have an out for every single occasion. I love it, the escape plan. Next question, what's your favorite resource in recovery? It has to be my group at the Alcohol and Drug Services here. Like I said earlier, we've all started at the same, around the same day. And, you know, I found my accountability partner there. I found really, really great, good people there, a wonderful support system. Starting out being sober with a group of people is a great idea because you're all probably going through similar things around the similar time. And next question, two in one. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? And then what's advice that you can give to somebody who's thinking about quitting drinking or is in early sobriety? Well, my best advice is to get an accountability partner and physically write out an email or note to someone and give them permission to call you out on your crap. That way they won't feel bad or awkward telling you to shape up when you're going down a bad road. And physically writing it out is key because when they do call you out and you start to hate them, then you can reread your note and realize that that's exactly what you were planning for. And I guess advice to other people about getting sober is to just dive in, just do it. Just don't give up. And you know, it's going to suck at first. It really is. And there's no way around that that I've found or I've seen. But if you make the change now, a week from now, you'll be better. And you might not see better every single day, honestly. You might see people that are happy and joyous after a month sober. That's really not all the case. The grass isn't always greener and happiness isn't always immediate. But it's okay. Keep going. It'll get better. And Christine, you're right. It does suck at first. (laughs) There's Mm -hmm. no way around that. It sucks for a little bit of time, for some longer than others, but it does get better. And before we depart, Christine, give listeners your Mm -hmm. own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. And from your interview, I can give a great one right now. You might be an alcoholic if you try to drink the spilt whiskey in the bottom of your cooler that's mixed with the water. You know, that's a perfect one. The other one that I was thinking of is, of is you might be an alcoholic if you start selling your fly rod and your favorite gun so you can buy another bottle of whiskey. Oh, yeah. That that would qualify. That would qualify. <laughs> Christine, you got it. like I mentioned before, 
thank you so much for answering the phone that night and coming up and picking me up. I mean, you drove like an hour each way to get me. Uh, you know, I had really bad allergies in the car on the way down. Just kidding. I was crying. I was a total wreck. I was a total mess. Thank you so much, Christine, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for being such an integral part in my sobriety this time around, too. It's wonderful to have you here in town and in my life. Before we depart today, Recovery Elevator, I've got some good news and bad news. Bad news is Jenny, who I interviewed about five podcast episodes ago, she just got diagnosed with breast cancer and started chemo last Tuesday. The good news, when I chatted with her about that, she said a drink wasn't even an option. How freaking cool is that? You've heard me say many times on this podcast that it's not a matter of if or when, but life will happen. And again, breast cancer it didn't happen to Jenny. It just happened. That's how life is. Nothing happens to us. It just happens. All we can control then is how we deal with it. But I find that so incredible, so powerful that a drink was not even an option. There was a time in my life, if the dental floss broke while flossing, I was going to drink. And in the last 25 months and three weeks of my sobriety, there's been no shortage of shit. But for the most part, for the last year and a half, a drink wasn't an option. And let me tell you, that feels fantastic. So for everybody out there listening, if we could say a prayer, some special words, send her your thoughts and energy. She would love that. It would be great. And Jenny, just like with the alcohol, you're not alone. We're all here with you. In Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 